Our sermon text this morning is from Genesis chapter 14, and uh, I mentioned it in the Sunday school class, but I'll mention it again today. It just seems that today is a big movie day. Um, for those of you who haven't been around here before, trust me, I do not have lots of movie illustrations. It just happens to be one of those days. Uh, we're breaking this text up into two. Uh, the, the chapter 14 is connected, uh, but I thought just in the interests of time uh, that we would break this up in a, in a thematic sort of way. So we're actually next week going to talk about the Ten Commandments since it's 10, 10, 10. And, uh, and then we'll get back to the, the, the situation with Abraham and Lot after that. Let's go to the scriptures this morning. At this time, Emraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Alazar, Kedor Laomir, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, went to war against Bera, king of Sodom, Birsha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Admah, uh, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is, Zoar. All these later kings joined forces, sorry, uh, latter kings rather, joined forces in the valley of Sadim, the Salt Sea, or the Dead Sea. For twelve years they had been subject to uh, Kador Laomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Kador Laomer and the kings allied with him went out and defeated the Raphaites and Ashtirathoth, Karnaim, uh, the Zuzites in Ham, the Emites in Shavah, uh, Kirilathium, and the Orites in the hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran and the near desert. Then they turned back and went to En Mishvat, that is Kadesh, and they conquered the whole territory of the Malachites as well as the Amorites who were living in Hazazan Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, and the king of Admah, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, marched out and drew up their battle lines in the valley of Sedim against uh, Kedor Laomir, king of Elam, Tadal, king of Goim, Amraphael, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elasar. Four kings against five. Now the valley of Sedim was full of tar pits. And when the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some of them fell into them, and the rest fled to the hills. The four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food. Then they went away. They also carried off Abram's nephew, Lot, and his possessions, since he was living in Sodom. One who had escaped came and reported this to Abram, the Hebrew. Now, Abram was living near the great trees of Mamre, the Amorite, a brother of Eschol and Anir, all of whom were allied with Abram. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. During the night, Abram divided his men to attack them, and he routed them, pursuing them as far as Hobah, north of Damascus. He recovered all the goods and brought back his relative Lot and his possessions together with the women and all other people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is sure and true. Your word gives us hope and courage when we believe what you promise. Help us now to see how great Jesus is 
that we might trust Him all the more. And we ask this in the name of the Savior of sinners, who has overcome the world. Amen. One of my favorite movies is actually three movies. It kind of happens a lot. But one of my three favorite movies, The Lord of the Rings. And there's so much that I appreciate in The Lord of the Rings, both in the, uh, the symbolism and everything that's involved, and also the normal traits that are characteristic. And what happens in the first movie, the first book of The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring, is that there is an oath that is made. There is a covenant that is made. And these men, this fellowship of the ring, are going to destroy the ring of power, which if you don't know anything about the story, don't worry, you don't need to know that. Okay? However, in the course, by the end of this first book, what happens is that they have been attacked, and two of their number have gone off separately, and another two of their member, number, hobbits, really kind of short, defenseless people, are taken captive by mean, nasty guys called Orakai, and they're being brought to the, king, the, the castle of their king, Lord Solomon, to be tortured that they might know where the ring of power is. It is because of this covenant that their friends who remain run after them and they seek them, running night and day to try and get to their friends, Mary and Pip, before they're brought to the castle. What a great picture of the faithfulness of friends. For it was not just a covenant that bound them, but now it was also an affection of the heart that bound them that they would seek the welfare of their friends. And that they did not stop at anything, but ran day and night, not letting anything get in their way. The picture, I think, of Christ that we see even here in the story of Abram and Lot. And the big idea this morning is that Jesus, the rescuer with a capital R, uses us to protect one another. Let's look at the story first. And the story is summarized in this one little idea that Abram rescues Lot and receives a great name. What begins as a fairly common event in that day ends up connecting with God's promise. For we see that uh, Cato Leomar, who from now on will be called Kamer, just for short. We're going to shorten that thing, right? I thought K-Man might work, but let's go with Kamer. He was a covenantal lord, which means that, that he was the biggest bully on the block, and as the biggest bully in the block, he basically set up a protection racket, much like you would see in movies that include the mafia, you know. If you pay us some money, we'll make sure your building doesn't get burned down and your stuff doesn't get stolen, right? And really, you're paying them to not destroy your building and take your goods, okay? That's the racket. So basically, K-Mer or K-Man is saying, you pay me money and I'll make sure that you're safe. And so he, he says, all of these kings within the, uh, the promised land and around the promised land come under his authority. He is their lord and they are his vassals. Now, when we think about kings, we tend to think about um, medieval Europe and we think of like whole like nations, you know, the king of England, the king of France, smaller scale here, okay, because it's they're, basically they're kings of cities. Okay, so the regions are much smaller. But what we find is that the... Uh, Kamer and his friends are all from southern Mesopotamia, which is, remember, our, our non-existent map? Way up here, okay, about 500, 400 miles north, and the other kings are down here just east 
of the promised land. So for 13, 12 years, they send him money. They send their tribute. In the 13th year, they get together and they're having a party or something. Who knows how this actually happened? But they said, you know what? We're tired of sending all of our money way up there. Let's join together and say no. And together, we can throw off his shackles. So that's what happens on the 13th year. On the 14th year, Kamer and his buddies show up. Okay? He's got other kings that are working with him that he is allied to. Either they're his vassals, and he says, you're coming with me now. Or he belongs to them. He's their vassal and says, hey, I need some help with my problem. Either way, they show up. And they try to destroy these other kings. And in fact, they find, we find that they're actually very successful in their endeavor. Uh, they defeat the Amorites. They defeat the, the, uh, the other ites that they defeated that I just forgot their name of. Doesn't matter. Anyway, so he brings his posse, and now this is going to be the showdown. The five kings of Canaan versus the four kings of Mesopotamia are going to duke it out in the valley of the, of the Dead Sea by the asphalt pits. And so what happens is that the four kings prevail. The men of the five kings of Canaan fall. And the kings of Canaan get out of Dodge, is what they do. And they head for the hills. They go and they hide. And since they have left their cities unprotected, Kamer and his friends sack them and take all that is good and right. Take all the possessions, they take all the people, uh, they, they take everything, basically. Here's the problem. Was it two weeks ago? Can't remember. That's why I didn't see that. Last week we talked about how Abram and Lot separated. Okay? And it said that Lot had settled by Sodom. Well, now we see a shift. He's no longer by Sodom, he is now in Sodom. He's moved. Okay, he's now, and the word that is used for him settling has this idea of more of a permanent basis. He's bought a house. He's got land. He's there for good. Okay, he's entrenched in Sodom. And because he's entrenched in Sodom, when the kings that follow Kamer come, he is taken captive. Wasn't he wasn't a prisoner of war who had gone out in the battlefield and gotten captured in the process of the battle. He is plunder. He is taken captive. He's being brought back. He's going to become a slave. He is going to be oppressed. Then something happens. We're not sure who. We're not sure how. We're not sure why. But one of the men escapes. Maybe he was one of the servants of Lot, we're not sure, but he shows up on Abram's doorstep. That was probably a little more difficult to find Abram because the word that is used for him has the idea of tenting. He's still leading a semi-nomadic lifestyle. He moves from place to place, okay? unlike his nephew, Lot. He's, at that point, he's tenting by the great trees of Mamre, who, with whom we find out he has now entered into some sort of covenantal relationship. He'd made friends, he, covenant friends in Canaan. Sort of like how the man, or the men, the elf, and the wharf, and the hobbits had all made a covenant in the Lord of the Rings. 
to protect and watch over one another to accomplish their purpose. And so Abram calls these friends of covenant. Because that word is used right there. This covenant that is made. And he says, let's go. That's interesting for a moment. Think about the guy who went to Egypt. What did Abram do there? Honey, I'm afraid they're going to kill me because you're good looking. Can you say that you're my sister? What we find, what we, what we might expect at this point in time is Abram to do something like, well, um, let me write a note and you can bring it back to him. Dear Lot, sorry about your change in circumstances, but you should have expected that when you went to Sodom. I can't really do anything to help you. Have an, I hope it goes well up in wherever it is you're going. He didn't do that. He didn't say, oh, well, you know, I'm just meek and lowly and defenseless down here. He doesn't think that way. There is a maturity of faith that has taken place from when he left Egypt to this point in time. Now, his faith is not perfect. We're going to see that in a few weeks, too. But yet, the coward has now become courageous. He gathers his 318 trained men that have been raised in his household. Okay? He gets his family. And he gets the men that he's in covenant with. And they go hunting. Now, this is not something that's going to happen in a day. It's not going to happen in a week. Because he's got to gather all of these people. And then he has to go find them. And so it's sort of similar to the Lord of the Rings because the elf is really good at tracking. And so, you know, they'll lose the trail and then the elf will find out which way they've gone. And there are always those moments because they're running on rock a lot. I don't know how you track people on rock, but they do this. It's part of the plot. That's what they're going to do. They're going to go. But it's a lot easier for them because they have the trade route to go up. So they're going up the trade route, and they're going as fast as they can because they have to go faster than the, the armies of Kamer because they've gotten a head start. And so eventually what happens is they come upon them, they sit back, they wait, they divide their forces, and at night they attack. And now some people have said, how can 318 guys take on a whole army? Remember, army's not as big then. It's not like you're fighting the whole army of England. Okay? This is a, a local city. And we think about Nineveh in the time of Jonah. It talked about it being, oh, I just remember the, forgot the word, 100 and, was it 20,000 or 180? Uh, we talked about it yesterday uh, in our small group. But not what we think of as a city, not millions of people. Okay, so the armies that are involved here are not nearly as big, and yet still what we find is that, remember, there's four of them. And there's Abram and his friends. And yet, he prevails. Think about that for a moment. Not only has, he, has cowardly Abraham uh, morphed into this courageous conqueror, but now he's conquered kings. Four powerful kings. Four kings who just wiped out five kings. What's going on here? What's going on is that God is keeping his promise to Abram to make his name great. That was part of what we looked at in Genesis 12, right? And those, and those are the things, those are the promises that are going to shape the rest of this book. In fact, the whole bigger book of the scriptures. 
And here, God is making his name great by making him a rescuer of Lot. So, God uses this very common event to keep his promise to Abram and therefore make Abram great. Let's move past the story to the point of the story. And I think the point of the story is that Jesus rescues his people to receive a great name. Moses writes this to reveal God as a promise-keeping God, and he does this precisely to instruct Israel for the time in which they are about to go into the promised land. Because after they entered this land, they were to be their brother's keeper. Now, it's one of the interesting things here is in this text, it doesn't actually say nephew. I know the NIV translates it that way. Okay? And it's not the son of, his, of Abram's brother. It actually says his brother. Okay? Brother Israelite. The point being that when Israel is in the land, they are not to be thinking only of their own tribe. They are to think of the other 11 tribes. And when the, one of the other 11 tribes is oppressed by another nation, another kingdom, they are to rise to the defense of their brother. They're not to be like Cain and say, hey, not my problem. They're to say, I am in covenant with you. We have the same God. We have the same father in Abraham and in Israel. And I'm going to help you. That's what was supposed to be going on. Okay? Uh, they're to be like Aragon and Gimli and, and looking out for Sam and Frodo and Pippin and, and Mary. The tribes were to protect one another from these aggressive nations. That's where Moses brings, is pointing us. But, but what is the Holy Spirit pointing us to in addition to that? And that is farther to Jesus, who is the ultimate rescuer. Again, we have this question. Sinclair Ferguson asks it. Are the scriptures going to be about you or are they going to be about Jesus? The scriptures are about Jesus. It's all, all of the, the scriptures make us wise for salvation in Christ Jesus. And this is it. We, we have to see ourselves initially not as Abram, but as Lot. As one who has been captivated, captive, yeah, captured who was under the authority of an evil empire of sorts and for whom nothing good is about to happen. Okay, just like Mary and Pip, they've been captured, they're going to be killed. And someone has to rescue them. And the someone who rescues us is Jesus. In the past, we see that Jesus conquered our enemies through the cross, Colossians chapter 2. See it put this way. That having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. This is an addition to the realities of justification, that our sins are paid for on the cross. In addition to that, Jesus also triumphs over sin, death, and hell, and Satan on the cross. He strips them of their power and their authority upon the cross. He comes against our enemies. And so, in a past perspective, we have been rescued, not just from the wrath of God, but we also have been rescued from the power of the evil one. 
It is both of those things that takes place. And in that, I sort of, another movie, but Last of the Mohicans with Daniel Lewis Day. I always, for some reason, I haven't seen that movie in years, but this, the one scene that always sticks out to me is when the woman he loves has been captured. And he goes into the Indian camp. But he doesn't go with guns a-blazing. He goes and gets beaten. As he's walking along, warrior after warrior is taking their shots at him. And he's nearly crawling when he finally gets to see his bride. And he delivers her from them. Christ did not deliver us initially through power, through conquest, but through laying down his life as a ransom for many. Okay? That's then. Present. What is Jesus doing now? And, and presently we see that Jesus gives us eternal life and keeps us safe in his hand. John 10. Talking about, Jesus talks about himself as the good shepherd. He, he talks about how he laid down his life for the sheep, but he also talks about how he gives his sheep eternal life and he keeps them in his hand, and there is no one who can snatch them out. Secure. He didn't look very powerful at that moment, and yet now he sits upon the throne of David in the heavenlies. And there is no one who can take his people out of his hand. Imagine for a moment, I had a precious jewel in my hand. Now, I won't say Eli, because Eli's pretty strong. But remember Jaden trying to take it out of my hand? <laughs> Jaden's not taking anything out of my hand if I don't want it out of her hand. Maybe in 10 to 20 years she will, but not right now. <laughs> That's the case. There is no one tough enough, strong enough, wily enough to take his people out of his hand. They are secure in him. So it's not only the past and the present, but we also see... The future, when Jesus will come, will come, and he will not come in weakness this time, he will come in power. Jesus will return to destroy his enemies. Second Thessalonians, almost the whole letter is written about that, but I think of this particular part of it. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. There is coming a time when Jesus will show up again and it will not be meek and mild. He will bring, I guess I think of Tombstone, White Earp. Tell him I'm coming and I'm bringing all hell with me. He's not bringing hell, he's bringing heaven. All of the faithful angels in their glory, which pale in comparison to his, are coming to bring justice. He will deliver his people, protect his people. So Jesus is the ultimate rescuer. But the question that we have to face is, do we believe Jesus has done this and will do these great things as he promised? Is that our hope? Is that what we're resting on? Is that, as the author of Hebrews says, the, the, the soul for us, so the anchor of our soul? Or is it just a mind game? This must be something that is settled down deep within us. 
the joy of our hearts, the thing that sustains through difficulty. Jesus doesn't just have a great name, but he receives the name that is above every name. Lord. And at that name, everyone will bow. Every knee will bend. Every tongue will confess. Whether they want to or not, he has the greatest name. And so Jesus, one greater than Abram, rescues all his people from sin, from death, from Satan. Let's move to the application. That we are meant to be instruments in the hands of the rescuer. Right now in our community groups, we're studying instruments in the redeemer's hands, and that's sort of the the whole idea here. I'm pilfering that. Think about this for a moment. How did God deliver Lot? Did he send a miracle? He sent Abram. Who probably wouldn't have been my on the top of my list of great rescuers to call, you know. <laughs> but that's who he sent. When Jesus, uh, sorry, when God was going to rescue you from sin and death, what did he do? Wave a wand? You're forgiven. Go on. He sent his son. He came to do it. And so when our brothers in Christ are ensnared by sin and oppressed by Satan, we are supposed to be our brother's keeper. The way in which Jesus keeps us is partially through one another. That's part of why it's so important to be part of a a local church so that we have each other's back. And that's part of why it's so important to be involved, not just on Sunday morning, uh, but to be engaged through small groups and other opportunities so that we have each other's back. We know each other. We care for each other. We help each other. We are meant to be his instruments to rescue and protect other Christians. That's exactly where Paul goes in Galatians, uh, sorry, Ephesians chapter 6. It talks about how this family, because everything before this has been colored by the doctrine of adoption and how we've been made uh, part of God's household and his family, we are his children and we are heirs and all of that great stuff. But here's the thing. It's not just that we're a family. We're also an army. We are the family that fights together. Too often we fight with one another. It's supposed to be the other way around. It's supposed to be fighting those who seek to destroy. And Paul reminds us that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. And so it would be easy. Let's go back to our... Opening illustration, it would be easy to think that the ultimate enemy that had Pip and Mary enslaved would be the Orakai, and it wasn't. It might be easy to go one step beyond and go, oh, it's, the, it's uh, Salomon who has this tower. It wasn't. It was the invisible 
except for the seeing eye on his tower. Dark Lord, Sauron, Satan. That's the ultimate enemy. And so our battle is not against flesh and blood. This is against sin and Satan when, we're, when we fight for each other. So we're not talking about picking up guns or anything like that. Okay? Talking about spiritual battle. But, the, but, but Paul goes with this is that we fight in his power. We fight in his armor. In Ephesians 6, finally, he says, Be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. We fight in His power. We fight in His armor. Not only that, we fight next to each other. He's he's using that, that idea of the Roman military. And if you've watched Gladiator... You've seen that, and it's similar to the 300 with the Spartans. They, they approached together. Their shields would be next to each other, and they would use their spears or their swords to kind of thrust. But th- what happens is that you, provide, you, prov- you create basically a wall of protection so that not only are you protected, but your fellow soldiers are protected. This is not a one-on-one battle that we find in Ephesians chapter 6 we find it is a battle between armies in Ephesians chapter 6. You were not meant to fight alone. No matter what sin you are struggling with, you were not meant to fight it alone. No matter how you are oppressed by the enemy, you are not meant to be there alone. Your brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ are meant to be next to you in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what's supposed to be happening. And that is not what happens so often. So often, the secrets that we have in our hearts separate us from our brothers and sisters, and so we're just like sick animals waiting for the lion to pounce upon. Instead of staying together, watching each other's back, and protecting one another. Because ultimately it is Christ who who protects us through one another. You can't have this whole, I got Jesus and who cares about the church thing. There is no metaphor in scripture that allows us to go there. Because we are brought into his body. We are made into His people. We are brought into His family. All of these are corporate ideas. We're brought into something bigger than ourselves. It's not just me and Jesus and everything is fine. It is me and Jesus' people through whom He works to accomplish these things. And so Jesus is the one who does the rescuing, which we're going to see in two weeks that it Really, it was not Abram, but it was the Lord who gave him victory. Okay? That's part of why I'm saying this. He does the rescuing, but he does it through us. Okay? That's part of why we're studying this in community group, so that we can learn to be, how to be involved in one another's lives in a redemptive way, to bring the gospel to bear upon the things that plague us, whether it's sorrow or whether it's sin. And here's the reality. I think I said a couple weeks ago, ministry is inconvenient. Redemptive ministry is messy. 
oozes. <laughs> it's like a wound. Okay? Those of you who have worked in the medical industry, someone's got a wound of some sort, and it's not usually neat and clean. It leaks everywhere, and it gets a, it's a, we're patching people who are wounded, and it's not pretty. But Jesus says, come, join me in this. You're not doing it alone. You're not doing it in your own wisdom. You're not doing it in your own power. You're doing it in mine. But come and join me in this great endeavor. And so what happens is so often we we pray for the, the physically sick. But sometimes we neglect those who are in bondage, in bondage to fear, or in bondage to addictions or other kinds of sin, in bondage to failure. Part of what has to happen is that we begin to stand beside those who struggle. Because sometimes it's you who struggles. Don't you want someone to stand by you? When you're lost in the wilderness, don't you want someone to look for you? And so when someone gets lost here, we need to go looking for them. When someone is wounded here, we need to bind the broken places with the balm of the gospel. So, when God made Abram's name great, he started with rescuer, brother's keeper. We don't just jump to be a rescuer and avoid Jesus. We first must be rescued by Jesus. You can't be Abram, so to speak, until you've been Lot. And you might be Lot again someday. (laughs) We become part of this family, the family of God, which is also his army, which struggles against the evil spiritual powers. And so, have you been rescued by Jesus? If not, now is a great time to ask him to rescue you. And if you're rescued, are you being put to use by Jesus? Is he training your hands for battle? Or are you sitting on the sidelines? Let's pray. Father, your word says that the joy of the Lord is our strength. And yet the evil one seeks to steal that joy from us and to cripple us through guilt through shame, through despair. And so help us to fight for joy, for one another's joy in Christ. Work in us to create a loving, authentic, vibrant Christian community, a family of fighters for joy in Jesus. And we ask this in the name of the sanctifier of the saints, the one who trains their hands for battle the one who grants them strength and protection, Jesus himself. Amen.